Hey everyone, it's me, DB. I'm just here, uh, taking care of some stuff up on top of, uh, the mayor's house. Making sure the heating's working and all that fun stuff. Uh, oh man, it's cold. Anyway, I'm helping Dave get ready for pulp stuff. So, oh, see, now it's working, now it's working, alright. Ah! You, anyway, okay. So, doing some pulp stuff, uh, doing some mystery stuff, and, uh, yeah. So, we're going to be doing Maurice, not Matt, Maurice LeBlanc's Lupin uh, Gentleman Thief book. The uh, Extraordinary Adventures of. So, check that out. It's going to be cool. It's going to be fun. We're all going to like it. It's going to be radical. All right, uh, what else? Let's see. Um, hope you're all doing well. I'm doing okay. I, yeah, no, things are going all right. I've been playing bass guitar a lot more. Uh, you can't see the blisters on my fingers, but, oh, man. Calluses to blisters. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fine line. Uh, what else do we got going on? We got a Harvest Festival coming up soon. And, uh... Yeah, I don't know what else to tell you, but definitely check out this month's book club, uh, Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglaire, by Matt LeBlanc. Oh, man, that was a terrible French accent. Don't ever, oh, man, don't ever tell me I can do a good French accent. I mean, unless you're buying me wine. That was terrible. All right, here we go. Recording by Kate Barrett. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Translated by George Moorhead. Chapter 1. The Arrest of Arsène Lupin. It was a strange ending to a voyage that had commenced in a most auspicious manner. The transatlantic steamship La Provence was a swift and comfortable vessel under the command of a most affable man. The passengers constituted a select and delightful society. The charm of new acquaintances and improvised amusements served to make the time pass agreeably. We enjoyed the pleasant sensation of being separated from the world, living, as it were, upon an unknown island, and consequently obliged to be sociable with each other. Have you ever stopped to consider how much originality and spontaneity emanate from these various individuals who, on the preceding evening, did not even know each other, and who are now, for several days, condemned to lead a life of extreme intimacy, jointly defying the anger of the ocean, the terrible onslaught of the waves, the violence of the tempest, and the agonizing monotony of the calm and sleepy water. Such a life becomes a sort of tragic existence, with its storms and its grandeurs, its monotony and its diversity, and that is why, perhaps, we embark upon that short voyage with mingled feelings of pleasure and fear. But during the past few years a new sensation had been added to the life of the transatlantic traveller. The little floating island is now attached to the world from which it was once quite free. A bond united them even in the very heart of the watery wastes of the Atlantic, that bond is the wireless telegraph, by means of which we receive news in the most mysterious manner. We know full well that the message is not transported by the medium of a hollow wire. No, the mystery is even more inexplicable, more romantic, and we must have recourse to the wings of the air in order to explain this new miracle. During the first day of the voyage we felt that we were being followed, escorted, preceded even by that distant voice which from time to time whispered to one of us a few words from the receding world two friends spoke to me ten twenty others sent gay or sombre words of parting to other passengers on the second day at a distance of five hundred miles from the french coast in the midst of a violent storm we received the following message by means of the wireless telegraph Arsène Lupin is on your vessel, first cabin, blonde hair, wound right forearm, travelling alone under the name of R. 
At that moment a terrible flash of lightning rent the stormy skies. The electric waves were interrupted. The remainder of the dispatch never reached us. Of the name under which Arsène Lupin was concealing himself, we knew only the initial. If the news had been of some other character, I have no doubt that the secret would have been carefully guarded by the telegraphic operator as well as by the officers of the vessel. But it was one of those events calculated to escape from the most rigorous discretion. The same day, no one knew how, the incident became a matter of current gossip, and every passenger was aware that the famous Arsène Lupin was hiding in our midst. Arsène Lupin in our midst! the irresponsible burglar whose exploits had been narrated in all the newspapers during the past few months, the mysterious individual with whom Ganimard, our shrewdest detective, had been engaged in an implacable conflict amidst interesting and picturesque surroundings, Arsène Lupin, the eccentric gentleman who operates only in the chateaux and salons, and who one night entered the residence of Baron Schormann, but emerged empty-handed, leaving, however, his card on which he had scribbled these words. Arsène Lupin, gentleman burglar, will return when the furniture is genuine. Arsène Lupin, the man of a thousand disguises, in turn a chauffeur, detective, bookmaker, Russian physician, Spanish bullfighter, commercial traveller, robust youth, or decrepit old man. Then consider this startling situation— Arsène Lupin was wandering about within the limited bounds of a transatlantic steamer, in that very small corner of the world, in that dining saloon, in that smoking-room, in that music-room. Arsène Lupin was, perhaps, this gentleman, or that one, my neighbour at the table, the sharer of my state-room. "'And this condition of affairs will last for five days,' exclaimed Miss Nelly Underdown next morning. It is unbearable. I hope he will be arrested. Then, addressing me, she added, And you, Monsieur d'Andrézy, you are on intimate terms with the captain. Surely you know something. I should have been delighted had I possessed any information that would interest Miss Nelly. She was one of those magnificent creatures who inevitably attract attention in every assembly. Wealth and beauty form an irresistible combination, and Nelly possessed both. Educated in Paris under the care of a French mother, she was now going to visit her father, the millionaire Underdown of Chicago. She was accompanied by one of her friends, Lady Gerland. At first I had decided to open a flirtation with her, but in the rapidly growing intimacy of the voyage I was soon impressed by her charming manner, and my feelings became too deep and reverential for a mere flirtation. Moreover, she accepted my attentions, with a certain degree of favour. She condescended to laugh at my witticisms and display an interest in my stories. Yet I felt that I had a rival in the person of a young man with quiet and refined tastes, and it struck me at times that she preferred his taciturn humour to my Parisian frivolity. He formed one in the circle of admirers that surrounded Miss Nelly at the time she addressed to me the foregoing question. We were all comfortably seated in our deck-chairs, the storm of the preceding evening had cleared the sky. The weather was now delightful. "'I have no definite knowledge, mademoiselle,' I replied. "'But cannot we ourselves investigate the mystery quite as well as the detective Ganimard, the personal enemy of Arsène Lupin?' "'Ho, ho! You are progressing very fast, monsieur.' "'Not at all, mademoiselle. In the first place, let me ask, do you find the problem a complicated one?' very complicated. Have you forgotten the key we hold for the solution to the problem? What key? In the first place, Lupin calls himself Monsieur R. Rather vague information, she replied. Secondly, he is travelling alone. Does that help you? she asked. Thirdly, he is blonde. Well, then we have only to peruse the passenger list and proceed by process of elimination. I had that list in my pocket. I took it out and glanced through it. Then I remarked, I find that there are only thirteen men on the passenger list whose names begin with the letter R. Only thirteen? Yes, in the first cabin, 
and of those thirteen i find that nine of them are accompanied by women children or servants that leaves only four who are travelling alone first the marquis de ravardin secretary to the american ambassador interrupted miss nelly i know him major rawson i continued he is my uncle someone said monsieur revolta here exclaimed an italian whose face was concealed beneath a heavy black beard miss nelly burst into laughter and exclaimed <laughs> that gentleman can scarcely be called a blonde very well then i said we are forced to the conclusion that the guilty party is the last one on the list what is his name monsieur rosen does any one know him no one answered but miss nelly turned to the taciturn young man whose attentions to her had annoyed me and said well monsieur rosen why do you not answer all eyes were now turned upon him he was a blonde i must confess that i myself felt a shock of surprise and the profound silence that followed her question indicated that the others present also viewed the situation with a feeling of sudden alarm however the idea was an absurd one because the gentleman in question presented an air of the most perfect innocence. "'Why do I not answer?' he said. "'Because, considering my name, my position as a solitary traveller, and the colour of my hair, I have already reached the same conclusion, and now think that I should be arrested.' He presented a strange appearance as he uttered these words. His thin lips were drawn closer than usual, and his face was ghastly pale, whilst his eyes were streaked with blood. Of course he was joking, yet his appearance and attitude impressed us strangely. "'But you have not the wound,' said Miss Nelly naively. "'That is true,' he replied. "'I lack the wound.' Then he pulled up his sleeve, removing his cuff, and showed us his arm. But that action did not deceive me. He had shown us his left arm, and I was on the point of calling his attention to the fact when another incident diverted our attention. Lady Jarlin, Miss Nelly's friend, came running towards us in a state of great excitement, exclaiming, "'My jewels! My pearls! Someone has stolen them all!' No, they were not all gone, as we soon found out. The thief had taken only part of them. A very curious thing. Of the diamond sunbursts, jeweled pendants, bracelets, and necklaces, the thief had taken not the largest, but the finest and most valuable stones. The mountings were lying upon the table. I saw them there, despoiled of their jewels, like flowers from which the beautiful coloured petals had been ruthlessly plucked. And this theft must have been committed at the time Lady Jarlin was taking her tea, in broad daylight, in a stateroom opening on a much-frequented corridor, Moreover, the thief had been obliged to force open the door of the stateroom, search for the jewel-case, which was hidden at the bottom of a hat-box, open it, select his booty, and remove it from the mountings. Of course, all the passengers instantly reached the same conclusion. It was the work of Arsène Lupin. That day, at the dinner-table, the seats to the right and left of Rosen remained vacant and during the evening it was rumoured that the captain had placed him under arrest, which information produced a feeling of safety and relief. We breathed once more. That evening we resumed our games and dances. Miss Nelly especially displayed a spirit of thoughtless gaiety which convinced me that if Rosen's attentions had been agreeable to her in the beginning, she had already forgotten them. Her charm and good humour completed my conquest. At midnight, under a bright moon, I declared my devotion with an ardour that did not seem to displease her. But next day, to our general amazement, Rosen was at liberty. We learned that the evidence against him was not sufficient. He had produced documents that were perfectly regular, which showed that he was the son of a wealthy merchant of Bordeaux. Besides, his arms did not bear the slightest trace of a wound. Documents, certificates of birth, exclaimed the enemies of Rosen, of course Arsène Lupin will furnish you as many as you desire. And as to the wound, he never had it, or he has removed it. Then it was proven that, at the time of the theft, Rosen was promenading on the deck, to which fact his enemies replied that a man like Arsène Lupin could commit a crime without being actually present. 
and then, apart from all other circumstances, there remained one point which even the most sceptical could not answer. Who, except Rosaine, was travelling alone, was a blonde, and bore a name beginning with R? To whom did the telegram point, if it were not Rosaine? And when Rosaine, a few minutes before breakfast, came boldly toward our group, Miss Nelly and Lady Jarlin arose and walked away. An hour later, a manuscript circular was passed from hand to hand amongst the sailors, the stewards, and the passengers of all classes. It announced that M. Louis Rosen offered a reward of ten thousand francs for the discovery of Arsène Lupin, or other person, in possession of the stolen jewels. "'And if no one assists me, I will unmask the scoundrel myself,' declared Rosen. Rosen against Arsène Lupin or rather, according to current opinion, Arsène Lupin himself against Arsène Lupin. The contest promised to be interesting. Nothing developed during the next two days. We saw Rosanne wandering about day and night, searching, questioning, investigating. The captain also displayed commendable activity. He caused the vessel to be searched from stern to stern, ransacked every stateroom, under the plausible theory that the jewels might be concealed anywhere except in the thief's own room. "'I suppose they will find out something soon,' remarked Miss Nelly to me. "'He may be a wizard, but he cannot make diamonds and pearls become invisible.' "'Certainly not,' I replied. "'But he should examine the lining of our hats and vests and everything we carry with us.' Then, exhibiting my Kodak, a nine by twelve with which I had been photographing her in various poses, I added, In an apparatus no larger than that, a person could hide all of Lady Jarlin's jewels. He could pretend to take pictures, and no one would suspect the game. But I have heard it said that every thief leaves some clue behind him. That may be generally true, I replied, but there is one exception. Arsène Lupin. Why? because he concentrates his thoughts not only on the theft, but on all the circumstances connected with it that could serve as a clue to his identity. A few days ago you were more confident. Yes, but since I have seen him at work. And what do you think about it now? she asked. Well, in my opinion, we are wasting our time. And, as a matter of fact, the investigation had produced no result but in the meantime the captain's watch had been stolen. He was furious. He quickened his efforts and watched Rosanne more closely than before. But on the following day the watch was found in the second officer's collar-box. This incident caused considerable astonishment, and displayed the humorous side of Arsène Lupin, burglar though he was, but dilettante as well. He combined business with pleasure, he reminded us of the author who almost died in a fit of laughter provoked by his own play. Certainly he was an artist in his particular line of work, and whenever I saw Rosanne, gloomy and reserved, and thought of the double role that he was playing, I accorded him a certain measure of admiration. On the following evening the officer on deck duty heard groans emanating from the darkest corner of the ship. He approached and found a man lying there, his head enveloped in a thick grey scarf, and his hands tied together with a heavy cord. It was Rosanne. He had been assaulted, thrown down, and robbed. A card pinned to his coat bore these words. Arsène Lupin accepts with pleasure the ten thousand francs offered by Monsieur Rosanne. As a matter of fact, the stolen pocket-book contained twenty thousand francs. Of course, some accused the unfortunate man of having simulated this attack on himself, but, apart from the fact that he could not have bound himself in that manner, it was established that the writing on the card was entirely different from that of Rosanne, but, on the contrary, resembled the handwriting of Arsène Lupin, as it was reproduced in an old newspaper found on board. Thus it appeared that Rosanne was not Arsène Lupin, but was Rosanne, the son of a Bordeaux merchant and the presence of Arsène Lupin was once more affirmed, and that in a most alarming manner. Such was the state of terror amongst the passengers that none would remain alone in a stateroom or wander singly in unfrequented parts of the vessel. We clung together as a matter of safety, and yet the most intimate acquaintances were estranged by a mutual feeling of distrust. 
Arsène Lupin was now anybody and everybody. Our excited imaginations attributed to him miraculous and unlimited power. We supposed him capable of assuming the most unexpected disguises, of being by turns the highly respectable Major Rawson, or the noble Marquis de Raverdan, or even, for we no longer stopped with the accusing letter of R, or even such or such a person, well known to all of us, and having wife, children, and servants. The first wireless dispatches from America brought no news. At least the captain did not communicate any to us. The silence was not reassuring. Our last day on the steamer seemed interminable. We lived in constant fear of some disaster. This time it would not be a simple theft or a comparatively harmless assault. It would be a crime, a murder. No one imagined that Arsène Lupin would confine himself to those two trifling offences. Absolute master of the ship, the authorities powerless, he could do whatever he pleased. Our property and lives were at his mercy. Yet those were delightful hours for me, since they secured to me the confidence of Miss Nelly. Deeply moved by those startling events, and being of a highly nervous nature, she spontaneously sought at my side a protection and security that I was pleased to give her. Inwardly I blessed Arsène Lupin. Had he not been the means of bringing me and Miss Nelly closer together? Thanks to him, I could now indulge in delicious dreams of love and happiness, dreams that I felt were not unwelcome to Miss Nelly. Her smiling eyes authorized me to make them. The softness of her voice bade me hope. As we approached the American shore, the act of search for the thief was apparently abandoned, and we were anxiously awaiting the supreme moment in which the mysterious enigma would be explained. Who was Arsène Lupin? Under what name, under what disguise was the famous Arsène Lupin concealing himself? And at last that supreme moment arrived. If I live one hundred years I shall not forget the slightest details of it. "'How pale you are, Miss Nelly!' I said to my companion, as she leaned upon my arm, almost fainting. "'And you,' she replied, "'ah, oh, you are so changed. "'Just think, this is a most exciting moment, "'and I am delighted to spend it with you, Miss Nelly. "'I hope that your memory will sometimes revert.' "'But she was not listening. "'She was nervous and excited. "'The gangway was placed in position, "'but before we could use it, "'the uniformed customs officers came on board.' Miss Nelly murmured, "'I shouldn't be surprised to hear that Arsène Lupin escaped from the vessel during the voyage. Perhaps he preferred death to dishonour, and plunged into the Atlantic rather than be arrested.' "'Oh, do not laugh,' she said. Suddenly I started, and in answer to her question I said, "'Do you see that little old man standing at the bottom of the gangway?' "'With an umbrella and an olive-green coat?' "'It is Ganimard.' Ganimard? Yes, the celebrated detective who has sworn to capture Arsène Lupin. Oh, I can understand now why we did not receive any news from this side of the Atlantic. Ganimard was here, and he always keeps his business secret. Then you think he will arrest Arsène Lupin? Who can tell? The unexpected always happens when Arsène Lupin is concerned in the affair. "'Oh!' she exclaimed, with that morbid curiosity peculiar to women. "'I should like to see him arrested.' "'You will have to be patient. No doubt Arsène Lupin has already seen his enemy, and will not be in a hurry to leave the steamer.' The passengers were now leaving the steamer. Leaning on his umbrella, with an air of careless indifference, Ganimard appeared to be paying no attention to the crowd that was hurrying down the gangway. The Marquis de Raverdan, Major Rawson, the Italian Revolta, and many others had already left the vessel before Rosanne appeared. Poor Rosanne! Perhaps it is he after all, said Miss Nelly to me. What do you think? I think it would be very interesting to have Ganimard and Rosanne in the same picture. You take the camera. I am loaded down. I gave her the camera, but too late for her to use it. Rosanne was already passing the detective. An American officer, standing behind Ganimard, leaned forward and whispered in his ear. The French detective shrugged his shoulders, and Rosanne passed on. 
Then, my God, who was Arsène Lupin? Yes, said Miss Nelly aloud. Who can it be? Not more than twenty people now remained on board. She scrutinized them one by one, fearful that Arsène Lupin was not amongst them. We cannot wait much longer, I said to her. She started toward the gangway. I followed. But we had not taken ten steps when Ganimard barred our passage. Well, what is it? I exclaimed. One moment, monsieur. What's your hurry? I am escorting mademoiselle. One moment, he repeated, in a tone of authority. Then, gazing into my eyes, he said, Arsène Lupin, is it not? I laughed and replied, <laughs> No, simply Bernard d'Andrézy. Bernard d'Andrézy died in Macedonia three years ago. If Bernard d'Andrézy were dead, I should not be here. But you are mistaken. Here are my papers. They are his, and I can tell you exactly how they came into your possession. You are a fool, I exclaimed. Arsène Lupin sailed under the name of R. Yes, another of your tricks, a false scent that deceived them at Havre. You play a good game, my boy, but this time luck is against you. I hesitated a moment. Then he hit me a sharp blow on the right arm, which caused me to utter a cry of pain. He had struck the wound yet unhealed, referred to in the telegram. I was obliged to surrender. There was no alternative. I turned to Miss Nelly, who had heard everything. Our eyes met. Then she glanced at the Kodak I had placed in her hands, and made a gesture that conveyed to me the impression that she understood everything. Yes, there between the narrow folds of black leather, in the hollow centre of the small object that I had taken the precaution to place in her hands before Ganimard arrested me, it was there I had deposited Rosen's twenty thousand francs and Lady Gerland's pearls and diamonds. Oh, I pledge my oath that, at that solemn moment when I was in the grasp of Ganimard and his two assistants, I was perfectly indifferent to everything, to my arrest, the hostility of the people, everything except this one question. What will Miss Nelly do with the things I had confided to her? In the absence of that material and conclusive proof, I had nothing to fear. But would Miss Nelly decide to furnish that proof? Would she betray me? Would she act the part of an enemy who cannot forgive, or that of a woman whose scorn is softened by feelings of indulgence and involuntary sympathy? She passed in front of me. I said nothing, but bowed very low. Mingled with the other passengers, she advanced to the gangway with my Kodak in her hand. It occurred to me that she would not dare to expose me publicly, but she might do so when she reached a more private place. However, when she had passed only a few feet down the gangway, with a movement of simulated awkwardness, she let the camera fall into the water between the vessel and the pier. Then she walked down the gangway, and was quickly lost to sight in the crowd. She had passed out of my life for ever. For a moment I stood motionless. Then, to Ganimard's great astonishment, I muttered, "'What a pity that I am not an honest man!' Such was the story of his arrest as narrated to me by Arsène Lupin himself. The various incidents, which I shall record in writing at a later day, have established between us certain ties, shall I say, of friendship. Yes, I venture to believe that Arsène Lupin honours me with his friendship, and that it is through friendship that he occasionally calls on me, and brings into the silence of my library his youthful exuberance of spirits, the contagion of his enthusiasm, and the mirth of a man for whom destiny has naught but favours and smiles. His portrait? How can I describe him? I have seen him twenty times, and each time he was a different person. Even he himself said to me on one occasion, I no longer know who I am. I cannot recognize myself in the mirror. Certainly he was a great actor, and possessed a marvelous faculty for disguising himself. Without the slightest effort he could adopt the voice, gestures, and mannerisms of another person. Why, said he, why should I retain a definite form and feature? Why not avoid the danger of a personality that is ever the same? 
My actions will serve to identify me. Then he added with a touch of pride, So much the better if no one can ever say with absolute certainty, There is Arsène Lupin. The essential point is that the public may be able to refer to my work and say, without fear of mistake, Arsène Lupin did that. End of chapter 1 The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc, translated by George Moorhead. Chapter 2. Arsène Lupin in Prison. There is no tourist worthy of the name who does not know the banks of the Seine, and has not noticed, in passing, the little feudal castle of the Malachis, built upon a rock in the centre of the river. An arched bridge connects it with the shore. All around it the calm waters of the great river play peacefully amongst the reeds, and the wagtails flutter over the moist crests of the stones. The history of the Malachi castle is stormy like its name, harsh like its outlines. It has passed through a long series of combats, sieges, assaults, rapines, and massacres. A recital of the crimes that have been committed there would cause the stoutest heart to tremble. There are many mysterious legends connected with the castle, and they tell us of a famous subterranean tunnel that formerly led to the abbey of Jumiège and to the manor of Agnes Sorel, mistress of Charles the Seventh. In that ancient habitation of heroes and brigands, the Baron Nathan Caon now lived or Baron Satan, as he was formerly called on the Bourse, where he had acquired a fortune with incredible rapidity. The lords of Malachy, absolutely ruined, had been obliged to sell the ancient castle at a great sacrifice. It contained an admirable collection of furniture, pictures, wood-carvings, and faience. The Baron lived there alone, attended by three old servants. No one ever enters the place, no one had ever beheld the three Rubens that he possessed, his two Watteau, his Jean Goujon pulpit, and the many other treasures that he had acquired by a vast expenditure of money at public sales. Baron Satan lived in constant fear, not for himself, but for the treasures that he had accumulated with such an earnest devotion, and with so much perspicacity, that the shrewdest merchant could not say that the baron had ever erred in his taste or judgment. He loved them, his bibelot. He loved them intensely, like a miser, jealously, like a lover. Every day at sunset, the iron gates at either end of the bridge and at the entrance to the court of honor are closed and barred. At the least touch on these gates, electric bells will ring throughout the castle. One Thursday in September a letter-carrier presented himself at the gate at the head of the bridge, and, as usual, it was the baron himself who partially opened the heavy portal. He scrutinized the man as minutely as if he were a stranger, although the honest face and twinkling eyes of the postman had been familiar to the baron for many years. The man laughed as he said, <laughs> It is only I, monsieur le baron. It is not another man wearing my cap and blouse. One can never tell, muttered the baron. The man handed him a number of newspapers, and then said, And now, monsieur le baron, here is something new. Something new? Yes, a letter, a registered letter. Living as a recluse, without friends or business relations, the baron never received any letters, and the one now presented to him immediately aroused within him a feeling of suspicion and distrust. It was like an evil omen. Who was this mysterious correspondent that dared to disturb the tranquillity of his retreat? You must sign for it, Monsieur le Baron. He signed, then took the letter, waited until the postman had disappeared beyond the bend in the road, and after walking nervously to and fro for a few minutes, he leaned against the parapet of the bridge and opened the envelope. It contained a sheet of paper bearing this heading, Prison de la Santé, Paris. He looked at the signature, Arsène Lupin. Then he read, Monsieur le Baron, 
there is in the gallery in your castle a picture of philippe de champagne of exquisite finish which pleases me beyond measure your rubens are also to my taste as well as your smallest watteau in the salon to the right i have noticed the louis thirteenth cadence table the tapestries of beauvais the empire guéridon signed jacob and the renaissance chest in the salon to the left all the cabinet full of jewels and miniatures for the present i will content myself with those articles that can be conveniently removed i will therefore ask you to pack them carefully and ship them to me charges prepaid to the station at batignolles within eight days otherwise i shall be obliged to remove them myself during the night of twenty seventh september but under those circumstances i shall not content myself with the articles above mentioned accept my apologies for any inconvenience i may cause you and believe me to be your humble servant arsene lupin p s please do not send the largest watteau although you paid thirty thousand francs for it it is only a copy the original having been burned under the directoire by barat during a night of debauchery consult the memoirs of garat i do not care for the louis fifteenth chatelaine as i doubt its authenticity that letter completely upset the baron had it borne any other signature he would have been greatly alarmed but signed by arsène lupin as an habitual reader of the newspapers he was versed in the history of recent crimes and was therefore well acquainted with the exploits of the mysterious burglar of course he knew that lupin had been arrested in america by his enemy ganimard and was at present incarcerated in the prison de la santé but he knew also that any miracle might be expected from arsène lupin moreover that exact knowledge of the castle the location of the pictures and furniture gave the affair an alarming aspect how could he have acquired that information concerning things that no one had ever seen the baron raised his eyes and contemplated the stern outlines of the castle its steep rocky pedestal the depth of the surrounding water and shrugged his shoulders certainly there was no danger no one in the world could force an entrance to the sanctuary that contained his priceless treasures no one perhaps but arsène lupin for him gates walls and drawbridges did not exist what use were the most formidable obstacles or the most careful precautions if arsène lupin had decided to effect an entrance that evening he wrote to the procureur of the république at rouen he enclosed the threatening letter and solicited aid and protection the reply came at once to the effect that arsène lupin was in custody in the prison de la santé under close surveillance with no opportunity to write such a letter which was no doubt the work of some impostor but as an act of precaution the procureur had submitted the letter to an expert in handwriting who declared that in spite of certain resemblances the writing was not that of the prisoner but the words in spite of certain resemblances caught the attention of the baron in them he read the possibility of a doubt which appeared to him quite sufficient to warrant the intervention of the law his fears increased he read lupin's letter over and over again i shall be obliged to remove them myself and then there was the fixed date the night of twenty seven september to confide in his servants was a proceeding repugnant to his nature but now for the first time in many years he experienced the necessity of seeking counsel with someone abandoned by the legal official of his own district and feeling unable to defend himself with his own resources he was on the point of going to paris to engage the services of a detective two days passed on the third day he was filled with hope and joy as he read the following item in the Réveil de Caudebec, a newspaper published in a neighboring town. We have the pleasure of entertaining in our city, at the present time, the veteran detective M. Ganimard, who acquired a world-wide reputation by his clever capture of Arsène Lupin. He has come here for rest and recreation, and being an enthusiastic fisherman, he threatens to capture all the fish in our river. Ganimard! Ah, oh, 
Here is the assistance desired by Baron Caorne. Who could baffle the schemes of Arsène Lupin better than Ganimard, the patient and astute detective? He was the man for the place. The Baron did not hesitate. The town of Caudebec was only six kilometres from the castle, a short distance to a man whose step was accelerated by the hope of safety. After several fruitless attempts to ascertain the detective's address, the Baron visited the office of the Réveil, situated on the quay. There he found the writer of the article, who, approaching the window, exclaimed, Ganimard? Why, you are sure to see him somewhere on the quay with his fishing-pole. I met him there and chanced to read his name engraved on his rod. Ah, there he is now, under the trees. That little man wearing a straw hat? Exactly. He is a gruff fellow, with little to say. Five minutes later, the baron approached the celebrated Ganimard, introduced himself, and sought to commence a conversation, but that was a failure. Then he broached the real object of his interview, and briefly stated his case. The other listened, motionless, with his attention riveted on his fishing-rod. When the baron had finished his story, the fisherman turned, with an air of profound pity, and said, "'Monsieur, it is not customary for thieves to warn people they are about to rob. Arsène Lupin, especially, would not commit such a folly. But, monsieur, if I had the least doubt, believe me, the pleasure of again capturing Arsène Lupin would place me at your disposal. But, unfortunately, that young man is already under lock and key. He may have escaped. No one ever escaped from the santé.' But he, he, no more than any other. Yet, well, if he escapes, so much the better. I will catch him again. Meanwhile, you go home and sleep soundly. That will do for the present. You frighten the fish. The conversation was ended. The baron returned to the castle, reassured to some extent by Ganimard's indifference. He examined the bolts, watched the servants, and during the next forty-eight hours he became almost persuaded that his fears were groundless. Certainly, as Ganimard had said, thieves do not warn people they are about to rob. The fateful day was close at hand. It was now the 26th of September, and nothing had happened. But at three o'clock the bell rang. A boy brought this telegram. No goods at the Batignolles station. Prepare everything for tomorrow night. Arsène. This telegram threw the baron into such a state of excitement that he even considered the advisability of yielding to Lupin's demands. However, he hastened to Caudebec. Ganimard was fishing at the same place, seated on a camp-stool. Without a word, he handed him the telegram. "'Well, what of it?' said the detective. "'What of it? But it is to-morrow.' "'What is to-morrow?' the robbery the pillage of my collections ganimard laid down his fishing-rod turned to the baron and exclaimed in a tone of impatience ah oh, do you think i am going to bother myself about such a silly story as that how much do you ask to pass to-morrow night in the castle not a sou now leave me alone name your own price i am rich and can pay it this offer disconcerted Ganimard, who replied calmly, "'I am here on vacation. I have no right to undertake such work.' "'No one will know. I promise to keep it secret.' "'Oh, nothing will happen.' "'Come, three thousand francs. Will that be enough?' The detective, after a moment's reflection, said, "'Very well. But I must warn you that you are throwing your money out of the window.' "'I do not care.' In that case. But after all, what do we know about this devil Lupin? He may have quite a numerous band of robbers with him. Are you sure of your servants? My faith! Better not count on them. I will telegraph for two of my men to help me. And now go. It is better for us not to be seen together. Tomorrow evening about nine o'clock. The following day, the day fixed by Arsène Lupin, Baron Caon arranged all his panoply of war, furbished his weapons, and, like a sentinel, paced to and fro in front of the castle. He saw nothing, heard nothing. At half-past eight o'clock in the evening he dismissed his servants, 
They occupied rooms in a wing of the building in a retired spot well removed from the main portion of the castle. Shortly thereafter, the baron heard the sound of approaching footsteps. It was Ganimard and his two assistants, great powerful fellows with immense hands and necks like bulls. After asking a few questions relating to the location of the various entrances and rooms, Ganimard carefully closed and barricaded all the doors and windows through which one could gain access to the threatened rooms. He inspected the walls, raised the tapestries, and finally installed his assistants in the central gallery which was located between the two salons. No nonsense. We are not here to sleep. At the slightest sound, open the windows of the court and call me. Pay attention also to the waterside. Ten meters of perpendicular rock is no obstacle to those devils. Ganimard locked his assistants in the gallery, carried away the keys, and said to the baron, And now to our post. He had chosen for himself a small room located in the thick outer wall between the two principal doors, and which in former years had been the watchman's quarters. A peephole opened upon the bridge, another on the court. In one corner there was an opening to a tunnel. I believe you told me, Monsieur le Baron, that this tunnel is the only subterranean entrance to the castle, and that it has been closed up for time immemorial. Yes. Then, unless there is some other entrance, known only to Arsène Lupin, we are quite safe. He placed three chairs together, stretched himself upon them, lighted his pipe and sighed. <sighs> really, Monsieur le Baron, I feel ashamed to take your money for such a sinecure as this. I will tell the story to my friend Lupin. He will enjoy it immensely. The Baron did not laugh. He was anxiously listening, but heard nothing save the beating of his own heart. From time to time he leaned over the tunnel and cast a fearful eye into its depths. He heard the clock strike eleven, twelve, one. Suddenly he seized Ganimard's arm. The latter leapt up, awakened from his sleep. "'Do you hear?' asked the baron in a whisper. "'Yes.' "'What is it?' "'I was snoring, I suppose.' "'No, no, listen.' "'Ah, yes, it is the horn of an automobile.' "'Well?' "'Well, it is very improbable that Lupin would use an automobile like a battering-ram to demolish your castle. "'Come, Monsieur le Baron, return to your post. I am going to sleep. Good night.' That was the only alarm. Ganimard resumed his interrupted slumbers, and the Baron heard nothing except the regular snoring of his companion.' At break of day they left the room. The castle was enveloped in a profound calm. It was a peaceful dawn on the bosom of a tranquil river. They mounted the stairs, Caon radiant with joy, Ganimard calm as usual. They heard no sound. They saw nothing to arouse suspicion. "'What did I tell you, Monsieur le Baron? Really, I should not have accepted your offer. I am ashamed.' He unlocked the door and entered the gallery. Upon two chairs, with drooping heads and pendant arms, the detective's two assistants were asleep. "'Tonnerre de nom d'un chien!' exclaimed Ganimard. At the same moment the baron cried out, "'The pictures! The credence!' He stammered, choked, with arms outstretched toward the empty places, toward the denuded walls where naught remained but the useless nails and cords. The Watteau disappeared, the Rubens carried away, the tapestries taken down, the cabinets despoiled of their jewels, and my Louis the Sixteenth candelabra, and the Regent chandelier, and my twelfth-century virgin. He ran from one spot to another in wildest despair. He recalled the purchase price of each article, added up the figures, counted his losses pell-mell in confused words and unfinished phrases. He stamped with rage, he groaned with grief, he acted like a ruined man whose only hope is suicide. If anything could have consoled him, it would have been the stupefaction displayed by Ganimard. 
The famous detective did not move. He appeared to be petrified. He examined the room in a listless manner. The windows? Closed. The locks on the doors? Intact. Not a break in the ceiling. Not a hole in the floor. Everything was in perfect order. The theft had been carried out methodically, according to a logical and inexorable plan. Arsène Lupin. Arsène Lupin, he muttered. Suddenly, as if moved by anger, he rushed upon his two assistants and shook them violently. They did not awaken. The devil, he cried. Can it be possible? He leaned over them and in turn examined them closely. They were asleep, but their response was unnatural. They have been drugged, he said to the baron. By whom? By him, of course, or his men under his discretion. That work bears his stamp. Oh, in that case I am lost. Nothing can be done. Nothing, assented Ganimard. It is dreadful. It is monstrous. Lodge a complaint. What good will that do? Oh, it is well to try it. The law has some resources. The law? <laughs> it is useless. You represent the law, and at this moment, when you should be looking for a clue and trying to discover something, you do not even stir. Discover something with Arsène Lupin? Why, my dear monsieur, Arsène Lupin never leaves any clue behind him. He leaves nothing to chance. Sometimes I think he put himself in my way and simply allowed me to arrest him in America. Then... I must renounce my pictures. He has taken the gems of my collection. I would give a fortune to recover them. If there is no other way, let him name his own price. Ganimard regarded the baron attentively as he said, Now that is sensible. Will you stick to it? Yes, yes, but why? An idea that I have. What is it? We will discuss it later, if the official examination does not succeed, but not one word about me, if you wish my assistance. He added between his teeth, It is true I have nothing to boast of in this affair. The assistants were gradually regaining consciousness with the bewildered air of people who come out of a hypnotic sleep. They opened their eyes and looked about them in astonishment. Ganimard questioned them, they remembered nothing. But you must have seen someone. No. Can't you remember? No, no. Did you drink anything? They considered a moment, and then one of them replied, Yes, I drank a little water. Out of that carafe? Yes. So did I, declared the other. Ganimard smelled and tasted it. It had no particular taste and no odor. Come, he said, we are wasting our time here. One can't decide an Arsène Lupin problem in five minutes. But morbleu, I swear I will catch him again. The same day, a charge of burglary was duly performed by Baron Caon against Arsène Lupin, a prisoner in the prison de la Santé. End of chapter 2, part 1